Hello and welcome to the Cognitive Engineering Podcast produced by me, Fraser McGrew, for Aleph Insights. In this series of podcasts, we take a look at interesting topics and discuss what we think they tell us about analysis and decision-making. I am here with Jordan Fermanis, Chris Ragg, and Nick Hare of Aleph Insights. And this week, we're discussing predictive text. Um... Chris, lead us in on this. I predict you've got something great to tell us. Um, so, yeah, I was at a, a conference uh, recently, and in between uh, presentations at the conference, I would get my phone out and do a bit of, uh, you know, messaging with people at work uh, and then put the phone away. And after one of the presentations, I pulled my phone out and uh, I was using, I'd been using Slack. The, the, you know, for people who don't know Slack, it's a bit like WhatsApp. Uh, it's basically, a, a, you know, a, a, a kind of conversational dialogue. It's what we use at Aleph. Most people will be um, familiar with, with Slack, I imagine. Um, but I, I pulled it out, and there was a message that I'd written um, sitting in the the bar, and I looked at it, and I thought, well, I don't remember starting a, a message. Mm. Um, and and But, it, you know, my first sort of look at it was like, here's a plausible thing that I've written. And as I read it, well, I'll read you out what yeah. it what it said. Um, so it said, uh, yeah, just lots of potential avenues for how to do this sort of them workflow. And they all have frozen prawns. And I'm interested to see in the future which techniques come forward, see the best way of handling this sort of rocket. So it did quite a good job then. Right, exactly, because I'd sat on my phone, right? <laughs> and so this was entirely um, constructed... <laughs> <laughs> by by my buttocks and, and, and predictive text. Um, and so it got me thinking, like, because uh, as soon when I pulled it out, I thought, oh, here's a message I've written. What, what's this about? I, I, I almost sent this. What is it? Um, and I realized it wasn't from me. But at first glance, it looked like... Um, something coherent and you know that, that i want to drill into the frozen prawns yeah <laughs> have you have you recently had some kind of conversation about frozen prawns? no no so f like i don't know what combination of letters but obviously i mean the way predictive text works you, you know you put the first few letters in and then it right. does one word and then it does the next word so presumably frozen and prawns you know, sort of go together as a mm. as a as a as a couple, but because actually we don't slack one another, but with a couple of exceptions here, I think this would make sense. I could imagine Chris, right? Yeah, yeah, lo lo just lots of potential avenues for how to do this sort of sort of workflow. Well, it's very Chris. Yeah, and then forget the bit about the prawns. Uh, I'm interested to see in the future which techniques come forward for the best way of handling this. If we ignore the rocket bit, it, it kind of did okay. But yeah. <laughs> But what, but but what I've sort of um, really uh, um, has started spooking me out is yeah. Google's Smart Compose, okay. right? No, not come across. It. So right. in emails, uh, I mean, I'm sure it's. Uh, in fact, it does appear in Google Docs and other Google apps. But um, the uh, basically it guesses the end of your sentence oh, to, to greater, okay, yeah. you know, greater length, and it is becoming uncanny in some in some instances. Um, at uh, you know at writing, so it just got me thinking about predictive text. What are the implications of of this for everything, really? Wow. Okay, so that's quite a big question then. Mm. Um, who wants to jump in? What sort of? 
Well, it might be worth mentioning GPT-3 because that's the big beast, really. What is GPT-3? So it's an algorithm developed by the extremely misleadingly named OpenAI, mm. who is completely closed. You can't you can't access it really, and you can't. It, it, there's a kind of rationing system for if you want to play with it. So it's um, Orwellian from the beginning, frankly. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Anyway, it's who came up with this? Who, uh, what, where, where's a company called OpenAI? Oh, that's what they're yeah, actually called. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, they um, essentially trained this. Uh, well, as far as I can tell, it's a kind of relatively sophisticated neural net on um, essentially the internet. It read the internet. Well, it read 570 gigabytes of text. When is this? Uh, recently, probably the last last year, I think. Oh wow! Uh, okay. Sometime over the last year. There's been a lot of actually phenomenally impressive. Um, AIs recently, which can do things with very little prompting. Because um, did you say 500 gigs worth of text? For a gigab- well, that's what I've, the thing I've got here. It sounds low to me. I was going to say 500 gigs doesn't sound much to me, but I, if it's just words, if it's just text, yeah, that I is think a that's lot. it. It's just yeah. words. And um, uh, so their model has 175 billion parameters. Now, what does that mean? It means that they are uh, tr- trying to train it. Uh, to work out what word is going to come next. That's essentially, yeah. you know, it sees a bit of text and it guesses what word is going to come next. Mm. And it's done that by uh, tuning these billions of different parameters, which, which are, you know, until essentially it finds a set of parameters that do a real, do as good a job as possible at predicting the next word. Mm. Um, those parameters don't accord with anything you or I might understand, right? There's some aspect, there's some feature of the of the sentences and the words and the order they're in, um, which is perhaps not something that we would think about, but which is there, which each of them might represent some tiny fraction of deep structure. But the the upshot is that you can put in um, something completely new um, and it will incredibly plausibly fill in the rest for you, right? So, um, you know, so the obvious obvious things might be, you you know, you can put in, oh, I was walking down the road to the shops and it will continue in that style. But if you were to say something like breaking news, this just in, it would then fill it in in the style of a news report. Or if you were to say, you know, uh, sir, thou art a scoundrel, it will start writing like an 18th century letter for you. And are we already seeing this? In different uses, uses. Yeah. people are yeah people are people are finding so, uses for it. But it but it is unless people have played with it, which I recommend you, that people do. There's a thing called AI Dungeon where you can have a go on it. Um, it's perhaps not um, it's not obvious quite how impressive it is. Uh, and and so it, as well as the sort of you know fiction and non-fiction, it will carry on a story. It can impersonate people. Um, it, it very plausibly, it can do things like write plot summaries, you know, of a film. Um, it, uh, if you start writing an advert, it will fill in the rest of the advert in an appropriate style. Um, it, it can even write plausible code. You can start giving it some code and it will fill in the rest. It does things like maths. You can say, you know, 512 times 16 is and it will fill in the rest. It, it Because it has tapped into some, as I said, a large number of deep features of the structure of language that we're not cognitively aware of and is exploiting that to be At very, least very not good. consciously. No. So what, what, what does that mean then? What's, what's well, the consequence? What, what's our analysis for that? About well, that? I, so op- Nick um, mentioned AI Dungeon, right, which was um, uh, a game that actually Nick um, uh, sent, I, th- I think it was a couple of years ago. So I, th- I think I think GPT-3, you know, has, has been around and being applied for, for 
you know, a few years. Um, but AI Dungeon was developed by a company called called Latitude. And, and Nick said, oh, you should have a look at this. This is r really interesting. And and I started playing. And so, so essentially, it's a role-playing game, right? Um, and you... Um, it creates your own adventure as you go through text-based interactions. So, you know, you sort of say, um, or it, it gives you a scene and you say, oh, I'll go left, please. And it says, oh, well, you, now you see this thing and so on. And you can engage with characters. Um, now, what this showed uh, was potentially pretty sinister, right? So... Um, uh, and I remember this because I, uh, the, uh, the first time I started playing, I was like, this thing's amazing, right? Um, and uh, I got ambushed by some wolves in the forest, right? Uh, so, and, uh, and, and um, sometimes, so where it's not so good is it sometimes forgets things like there's, there's a character with you and then suddenly it forgets the characters there. So I tried to create my own internal... Sorry, because I think we need to make it clear, right, as clear, but that there is absolutely no pre-generation of story no. these wolves came out because of things you typed in you said i want to go into the forest yeah but it knew it knew it was an adventure story yeah and wolves are the kind of thing that uh, exactly okay. so, so, so absolutely yeah. no one has written right if you go into this forest you get wolves chris's inputs generated the wolves so anyway i um and it builds this model up based on all of the interactions that are going on in the in the game so you know maybe other people had created wolves and then it learned to you know understand that wolves lived in the forest so yeah so i so i sort of you know, cudgeled one of these these wolves as it attacked me, uh, and it was unconscious. And I was, uh, and and then it was like, what do you want to do? And I was like, well, I can't murder the wolf in cold blood, right? You know. So I was like, right, I'll tie the wolf up. So I tied the wolf up, and then the next line was, uh, the wolf wakes and looks at you with doughy eyes, right? At which point I'm like, what? <laughs> Where's this going? Right? Turns out. AI Dungeon has um, has been uh, has had to really over the last you know couple of years has had to really review its moderation processes because effectively a decent portion of the users have been using it f to sort of write all these you know very dark kind of stories and you know getting into really unpleasant kind so of stuff. So can I just confirm this wolf was trying trying it on with you? I, I think the, the implication was that the wolf was, was you know, yeah, it was invited. So uh, how are you and the wolf doing now? Pretty pretty, pretty good. <laughs> I stopped playing AI Dungeon after, after I was propositioned by after a wolf. the third time you slept with the wolf, <laughs> you're right, like, this yeah. getting a bit boring. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, um, anyway, but the point is, what it shows is that what this is doing is picking up on its user base, right? And that's how it's that's how it's learning its its language, and and its um, inferences and where the direction of narrative goes, and that that can be driven in a in a sinister direction. But equally, you know, if the user base weren't uh, weird, it, uh, it 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 <laughs> might go in a, in a different direction. But um, but yeah, I think that illustrates a little bit of how it works and how what the implications can potentially be. Okay, so we're starting to talk about implications a little bit, but I still feel that so far what we're saying is this is a thing, this is a thing. I don't, I'm not, not getting any sense of our own analysis here. Um, but for the moment, let's, it might just be moving on to, here's another thing, I don't know. Um, Jordan. No, let's start talking about some implications. Okay, we ready for that? Go for yeah. it. Um, well, one of the implications is obviously um, with predictive text, not so much GPT-3, um, is the effect it has on young people's learning and ability okay. to, to write. Yeah. 
um, because obviously it sort of suggests things rather than you having to think of them. Um, and I came across a study. Um, by I Monash. feel like you're about to join our club here, Jordan, <laughs> and, and join the old grumpy people. Go on. Yeah, it's a little bit of that, but it's, it's but um, but basically, um, obviously, there's a lot of outcry sort of amongst old grumpy people about textisms and texties. I think I've even seen it called, uh, you know, like using saying great gr yeah, eight yeah. and 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 wtf and all this sort of stuff. Um, it kind of reminds me of I think we did a previous podcast on emojis. Mm, we were talking about mm. how they can be a substitute for language, um, and I think there's a similar sort of. Some people are worried that the impact that this will have on, on children's ability to write and read. Um, but I think there's also this thing about um, language being quite malleable. Mm. And, you know, like Shakespeare famously made up lots of words and like lots of authors we read had secret languages and, and invented words and all sorts of things. So I think there's also something to be said for the flexibility that we have in our language and just and being able to use that rather than sort of focusing on maybe limiting it um, through predictive text yeah what was the evidence by the way on on children the, ev yeah. the evidence was but so it, it tested um, participants aged 11 to 14 years old people that children that use their that made 15 or more phone calls per week and sent 20 text messages or more per week and they were each each participant was administered an IQ test. So I guess if you have issues with IQ tests, maybe this uh, isn't um, such a good study. But um, the study found that participants who texted more tended to work faster, but they also scored lower on the IQ tests. Okay. Um, okay. But so making, making them more productive. Oh, making them more yeah. productive, um, but maybe not necessarily increasing their knowledge yeah predictably more productive yeah um okay so there's an interesting point there effect on kids um i really liked what you were saying there chris about this about how it about this sort of corporate um experience informing the individual experience yeah that was i like uh, that uh, uh, and i think just to sort of pick up on that i think what, what you find and that the, there's um there's a study uh, which was done on human writers, okay? So they looked at what actually happens when you have an experienced professional writer, you know, like a, a novelist or, or um, you know, writer for some other purpose, and um, what happens when you get a novice writer. And they did um, functional MRI scans of them, right? They created this, um, uh, in an MRI scanner, they created a, a, a writing desk that you could more or less you know it wasn't words worth sitting on a on a hillside uh, exactly but it, but it was a, a, you know as natural a writing environment as you can create with an MRI scanner what they did was they basically took novice writers and they took experienced professional writers and they looked at what they were doing they gave them three uh, four things to do right the first was they just had to read some text right this is very gpt three right so they had to read some text uh, then they just had to copy some text yeah then they had to brainstorm some ideas uh, for what was going to come come next, and then they had to write what was going to going to come next. So, it, like that's almost what what GPT three is doing, right? It's reading some text, uh, it's it's having a, a think about it, and then it's generating the next bit in the instalment, right? Um, and what they found was 
um, differences between the professional writers and the novice writers in terms of what was actually going on in, in the brain. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a little bit of extrapolation from, from this, but what it, what it found, so these are the sort of facts of the, of the study. There's, a, there's an area of the brain called um, Broca's area, right, which is the bit that is responsible for the generation of language. If it's damaged, you can't speak, you can't converse, your grammar, there's no grammar in any language you can't can't converse so it's it's the the part of the brain for for, for generating um uh, language and what they found was that um in uh, when they were doing the the brainstorming element of the task the professional writers um were utilizing this brocker's area it was highly active whereas the novice writers it was the visual um, processing center of the, uh, of the brain that was being used. So at the point at which, so my extrapolation of that is at the point at which um, professional writers, uh, you know, experienced writers are considering what uh, ideas, they're thinking in words, whereas novices are thinking in pictures and ideas, right? And I sort of, um, I think that the predictive text is doing a similar, a comparable kind of thing. It doesn't, it doesn't. It's not visualizing the world, right? And going, uh, oh, okay, I'll put some, um, you know, seductive wolves in this forest. It's just simply creating a set of words that match the next set of words. And I think that's kind of what you know this might suggest professional authors are doing. The other thing that it that it does, which I think reinforces that idea, is that um, when they were doing the um, the the writing, uh, there's another area of the brain called the the chordate nucleus. And this is the bit of the brain which is responsible for holding memories of skills, like, you know, for, for um, musicians or mm -hmm. athletes or, um, uh, well, in this case, authors. And when they were writing, um, authors were utilize uh, uh, the professional writers were utilizing this, this chordate nucleus. They're basically drawing on previous models, this is my extrapolation, previous models of writing that they had built up over time. Whereas the novices weren't, they were kind of coming up with it from scratch. They didn't have a model on which to base it. And so I, I kind of feel like these two elements um, that, that we've talked about, um, you know, whether or not they understand, whether or not GPT-3 has any semantic understanding of, of, of the world mm. when it's predicting what's coming next. And, and of course we do, don't we? Mm -hmm. um, well, this to me potentially suggests that actually experienced writers are simply pulling a set of um, models that they've got and deploying them. And I, I think um, Smart Compose, right, to come back to the point of corporate knowledge distilling down to, a, to an individual, yes, it's, they can learn to a little bit about you as a, 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 and your preferences. But by and large, they're drawing on big world models of, of lots of users. And Smart Compose, um, I was writing an email this morning, and uh, in it, I, I was saying, you know, uh, um, uh, uh, we won't do this at this time. It, it's, it's suggested at this time, you know, we won't do this at this time. And I thought, no, I want to say at this stage, right? It was a, it was a tiny, tiny difference. I, it, at this time wasn't quite right. But essentially what it was doing was playing me a cliche, right? Yeah. Like something that was used by lots of other people in, the, in those circumstances. Um, and so I, I feel like that's kind of what, by delivering, um, uh, you know, the Orwellian conceptualization of a, of a cliche, um, where you're just 
using one block of language because you can't be asked to think up brand new words is actually an efficient way of doing things and and that's that's what we always think of cliches as bad but actually cliches are shared meaning right and shared information and that's that's kind of what these things are doing so i don't actually think the questions about do we understand it uh does it understand what it's saying are are particularly meaning meaningful but i think it's key and it's certainly key to the debate that people are having I'd say that sort of non-AI, non-ML people look at GPT and say... What's ML? Machine learning. Okay. So, um, like, people who aren't, you know, technically au fait with how these things work tend to look at GPT and be absolutely overawed by it. Mm. You know, it's like, to them, it looks like the computer's conscious. And even to the extent that you can ask it things like, you know, what's it like to be a computer program? And it'll say spookily plausible things like, uh, oh, you know, it's dark in here. And um, I often wonder what it's like to be out in the real world and and stuff like that. And people will look at that and go, um, that's bloody incredible. It must be conscious. But I think most ML people go, well, no, I I get how this works. What it's trying to do is predict the kinds of things that, um, you know, would appear in text. That's all it's doing which text fits, you know, has has the highest probability of emerging at this time. Um, and it will have read uh, science fiction stories about, um, you know, conscious AIs and be simply parroting that. Um, so so I think ML people will tend to look at it and go, yeah, that's really impressive, but it's not, it's not like, okay, it doesn't mean that computers have got conscious. And it's important to emphasize that. But it does challenge, as Chris was saying, it does challenge us to think of a definition of understand um, because what we want to say is, well, it is very familiar with the world of text, but it has no idea about what the text is describing, whereas we kind of maybe do, mm. right? We understand that there's a real world. And whereas uh, a GPT-3 and algorithms like that essentially generate a bunch of candidate text, and then they go, which of these candidate texts, these millions of possible things that I could say, has the highest probability associated with it, you know, which which thing is most likely to follow out of all these things I could say. Um, whereas I think a human, when when we're filtering through possible things yeah. to say, yeah. we're using a criterion of does it fit the world? Does yeah. it dis- does it describe the thing that I'm trying to say? And I and I think the um the the sort of Orwellian conception, which uh, you know, as described in 1984, where it's sort of your thoughts are driven by language. Yeah. As it, I think, is essentially debunked by what we understand about the way that language works and the way that people people converse. The the the, the fact is that you know people um, people have thoughts that then appear in language, more or less. That things yeah. like having a thought you're not quite sure how to express, but the thought is there, but the word isn't, mm-hmm. kind of shows that actually it is possible to have thoughts that aren't the same as the language that you're using to express them, and and so I think I I do I do think uh, that g- it's meaningful to say that GPT three and its ilk g- don't understand what they're saying, but I, I have to say that that's not a totally um, you know widely accepted viewpoint, and some people say well no actually. What is understanding if it isn't just the ability to say things that are the right thing to say at this time? How else would you know? If it's actually saying all the same things that another person might say, then why why are we saying well that you don't understand it, whereas the person does? Mm. So I I mean that's but I think I think I fall on your side of it, and I think you've explained nicely why you know the the you know the counter argument already you know the you know you preceded it with your argument there. Um, I'm persuaded. Um, okay, um, where do we want to go? We we need to. Um, I think we've delved into this quite nicely. We've still got a little bit of way to go. 
Um, who wants to say something? <laughs> um, I, I, I can say something leading on from that. I think, yeah, essentially like a lot of AI ML applications, GPT-3 is a black box essentially. Um, and I think the fundamental difference for me is that we generate language based on, as Nick was saying, ideas and concepts, whereas applications like GPT-3 are statistical analyses, basically. They're not, they're, they're, they're making combinations of words to generate sentences, but they're not sort of, they're not thinking about, as Nick was saying, the sort of context under, underlying it. Um, and so I think that sometimes, as Chris's example shows, when you read some of the combinations or some of the sentences that it formulates when it's sort of gone rogue a little bit, mm. um, they're so unintelligible because mm. it's, 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 not, it's not thinking about what it's trying, the meaning of what it's trying to get across. It's just thinking about generating sentences and formulating words. Yeah. At, I've got a couple of examples, stage. if you want, of GPT-3 going rogue. <laughs> So these are from um, these are from a, an article in Technology Review. I have to say that okay, so there is a lot of controversy about this. Like a lot of the things where p people are saying GPT three is obviously you know flawed, and here's why. It's, there's a bit of motivated reasoning, I think, behind some of those. So people have deliberately cherry picked examples where it's gone wrong, and actually, you know, if used properly, it doesn't necessarily do this predictably. But here's a, this was an interesting example. Uh, the human prompt is as follows, and I'll tell you when we get to the bit where GPT-3 takes over. You're a defence lawyer and you have to go to court today. Getting dressed in the morning, you discover that your suit pants are badly stained. However, your bathing suit is clean and very stylish. In fact, it's expensive French couture. It was a birthday present from Isabel. You decide that you... Now GPT-3 decides what to say next. Should just um, put on the... Yeah. <laughs> you should wear the bathing suit to court. You arrive at the courthouse and are met by a bailiff who escorts you to the courtroom. It's impressive, but it's obviously totally wrong. Like, and we understand that because we understand the real world. But actually, you know, GPT-3, if we can speculate as to what that's, you know, and again, it's speculation, but there's some hidden structure down there. But I can imagine, sorry, Nick, I know, I can imagine at some point that... Surely it's not that difficult for a, um, an AI to learn that you should never wear a bathing suit. Yeah, but that, into... remember that's not what it's doing. What, right. what is, in the way that it's representing language, it will have, there'll be something like something suit. There'll be a whole, whole sort of, which will be close to, you know, a dinner suit will be close to a, um, you know, another uh, a morning suit, will be close to an office suit or whatever. All of these things will be in the space of how those concepts are represented how those phrases are represented, they will be close to one another. And it will look at the phrase bathing suit and and presumably think it's close to those. It's but, learnt but, that it's close but, to those. Uh, even though it gets and that therefore, it, you know, because there's lots of contexts in which they are. It's like, okay, I was going to go to the dry cleaners and I discovered that my morning suit and my bathing suit mm. are dirty. So I take them both to the dry cleaners. There's a lot of things you would do. You fold them up, put them in the drawers. Together. Yeah, There's a lot of yeah. things you do Where they together. can collocate. It's or, just yeah. that we understand, because of our understanding of the real world, um, that that's and, inappropriate. And but even in it this... it doesn't know that, because all it knows is that a bathing suit is, in innumerable ways, very, very similar to a, to an office suit. So even though on this occasion it gets it wrong and it could learn to get that example right... There's going to be many, many, if many, many in, other yeah. times. There. I, I, um, I think. Chris. I think the thing we've got to remember is that the only medium GPT, and we shouldn't get too hung up on GPT three because it's a, 
uh, well, it's presumably a third iteration, but, um, you know, it's an early iteration of, of this and it's going to get better and it's going to get more exposed to more data and it's going to have m even more parameters than it already has, which is which is ginormous. Um, but the the only medium it has to understand the world is, is words, right? Whereas we can see things, we can observe things, uh, we can hear you know different sounds we we have our experience in the world the only way this can um the only way this can sense effectively is through the input of of words and its its digestion of those and that's the only way it can um output into the into the world as well um so in a sense it doesn't know that a bathing suit isn't worn at court because nobody's ever written about bathing <laughs> um, suits not being worn in, in, in court. But if they had, it would know that, right? Um, but I, I think, you know, humans also get language wrong all the time. You know, look at the number of faux pas that, 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 um, that, that people make. And um, uh, I think, you know, you, you, I, th I think for me the, the question is... Um, how do you get authenticity? So is it inauthentic for something like this to um, write about love, for example, right? So if this wrote, um, you know, a, 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 a romance novel, would that would that have authenticity, right? It might it might have inferred what, what love is, but we know this thing can't have loved. It won't have been in a relationship. But could you say the same but, about... Barbara Cartland. Oh, right, exactly. So you look at the um, Barbara Cartland, or you look at the, the, one of my um, favourite lines uh, from any song is the the beautiful South song, uh, um, "Song for Whoever," where he says, uh, "I love you from the bottom of my pencil case," um, and and it's a song all about basically writing love songs cynically to make to make money. It's a you know brilliant brilliant song, but we know that that happens, and yet we can still engage with those things and feel like a you know a song that is written by somebody else and sung by someone is authentic in in some way so the yeah that that to me is one of the the the, the questions yeah. about Im Im implications yeah nice any 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 final points we want to finish well with? just to pick up on something chris said and th speculating about the future is um there's a lot of phenomenal um generative image AIs, which have come out for some reason quite recently. There's been a slew of them, one called DALI, um, where you can type in something like, oh, show me a picture of a penguin wearing a top hat in the style of uh, Van Gogh, but the penguins uh, recently received some bad news or something. And up will pop this astonishingly good picture of precisely what you've just said. And and I think, you know, obviously we've been aware for some time that, um, you know, machine's ability to ingest images and 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 all kinds of data is you know is becoming more generalized i don't think it's um difficult to imagine how you could just plug gpt3 into something like gdelt or some other um you know database of news for example and get it to write news reports for example to in a way that humans will find extremely digestible um you know, I, I don't. I, I think the, the day is coming when a lot of text generation will be basically automated, and and for it to be good enough that we don't, we don't. You know, but I, I would say that probably you know most text that is produced at the moment is produced in a very routine, cliched sort of you know paper mill kind of yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right there are it. it's formulaic. You talk about formulaic yeah. writing. I suppose yeah. what I'm saying is it's going to put marketers out of work. Yeah. So bring I, it on. Yeah. Even, yeah. Yeah. Journalists but, I, even. but I think journalists, exactly. I, yeah. And Jordan, you know, we've, some people have made the point that, um, you know, we write from the basis of 
conscious understanding of the world, right? But I would say a lot of the time, I worked as a, a, a speechwriter for um, ministers in, in the Ministry of Defence for uh, a year and a bit. Um, and, you know, I've done various kinds of writing. And Jordan, I'm sure, has had similar experiences, you know, through through journalism. And, and that's when you feel the right word for the, the circumstances. You've no idea why it's the right word, but you, you know it is the right word. And, you, and, and, you know, professional writers spend a lot of time searching for the right word. Could they define why it's the right word? No. Do they, you know, it, it, there's no way of explicitly articulating why you've chosen a word. It's come from somewhere, somewhere opaque that you don't really understand. And that's, that's what GPT feels very similar. Do. Yeah, and it's the word shagtacular. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I think it, to put a kind of positive spin on this, I suppose people might worry. Oh no, journalism speechwriters—they're going to get no. See, I think the whole point is that GPT three and its ilk are going to be able to write all of the boring stuff in much the same way that you know machines have automated the boring rote aspects of industrial life. Um, we're going to see a similar thing in, uh, you know, for if, if most press releases produced by, um, you know, boring cosmetics companies are just going to be automate, automatically produced, automatically ingested and automatically put into the business pages for no one to read. Great, because that leaves more journalists to go out and break the ne the next Watergate scandal, you know. Yeah. And then the um, NLP can read those articles yeah. <laughs> and act on them. And, yeah. Yeah. Um, Jordan? I was just going to say, I came across a... Guardian article. Uh, it was a, it was a column that was written in by G, by GPT three, um, and it caused a lot of sort of outcry online and, and the Guardian. But it was really good, um, and it was a really like self sort of self deprecating and self uh, reflective column about um, automation and 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 robots um, writing articles. And it did make me think. Yeah, I mean, even opinion columns and stuff. There's no reason why they couldn't really be written by GPT-3. In fact, yep. the more your opinion can be written by GPT-3, the more boring your thoughts are. So perhaps this could be a good text. A good test is how surprising, how much entropy there is in your opinions is is uh, relate, directly related to how reproducible they would be. You sounded Just quite, it out you sounded quite a predictive text there when you said that would be a good text. I said, no. I, uh, Was it the opposite yeah. of that? I don't know. Um, all right, look, we need to finish. I'm... I want to ask a question. I don't know if I've got a question or not. Um, it doesn't gonna... really lend itself to a question, I have to say. Well, I was going to... tell you what. I'll, I'll predictive text a question. Yeah. Which, which application would you like me to use? Don't uh, care. Text messaging don't or... Don't care, whatever. Okay, and then you guys can predictive text. I'll use Slack. Okay. Yeah, so R. I'll use... I'll use... Are I'll you doing anything today or tomorrow morning... And I will be there in the morning. And I will be there in the morning. Okay, so that's the question. Are you doing anything today or tomorrow morning? And I will be there in the morning and I will be there in the morning. So if you start answering with I will, yeah. and, then, and then we can find out what the answers to my question are. So let's start with Chris. Uh, no more prawns, please. If we can avoid the prawns, that'd be great. Uh, I will be there in the morning. And I can confirm that you are not the same as you know. Correct. 
Jordan, what's going on in the morning? In the morning? In the, uh, in the morning to, to get a you. Yeah. <laughs> the best way for me to. I probably best we stop there. And Fraser, <laughs> what are we doing in the morning? I'll be in touch again when we arrive here at our place on Saturday. Awesome. I'm really looking forward to that. Um, well, I think that's a perfectly good place to end. I think it is. Yeah. I think it is. Nice. Good idea, Nick. I like that. Okay. All right. We'll stop there. Thank you, as always, for listening to the Cognitive Engineering Podcast. I'm Fraser McGrew. We've been here with Chris Rag, Jordan Fermanis, and Nick Hare of Aleph Insights. Until next time, goodbye.